on This is Vinyl Tap. Deciding not to decide, but deciding anyway. Carla exposes Paula Turnbull's unmentionables. Chicago Tribune pitches a fit. And clouds prepare for battle. In 1948, Columbia Records introduced the 33 and a third RPM long player record. One year later, RCA Victor introduced the 45 RPM single. Listeners now had a choice, only the hits or the full album. In the last half of the 60s, the best bands realized the potential of the longer format and began to build a cohesive body of music that must be heard unbroken. The arrival of downloadable music has increased the temptation to stay in the shallow end with the hits. This podcast believes every album tells a story. Tonight, we tell one of those stories. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight we're talking about Permanent Waves. This album was recorded in 1979 and released in 1980. It's the seventh album from a band called Rush. This is our first Canadian band that we have ever talked about. This album made it to number three in Canada, number four, where it counts. And uh, it was recorded in, in Quebec. We're doing this record tonight largely because one of our associates is a great fan of this band. Tony? Yeah, Doug. Why is Permanent Waves a good album? Well, before I get started, I want to say that uh, I'm, I'm happy you guys agreed to do this. I think we're essentially getting rid of... Um, we had lost a little bit of hipster cred when we did the Boston album. We gained much of it back when we tackled The Clash and Willie Nelson. I think we're about to go down the drain again in terms of our hipster cred. So I appreciate you guys <laughs> willing to embrace that and go down the drain with me. But uh, uh, I, I missed what you ask me again, Doug. I apologize. <laughs> well, this is going to be the question I ask all night long. OK. And usually it's a rhetorical question, but tonight it's not. <laughs> Why is this such a good album? Well, uh, in, there's kind of it's kind of complicated. There's two reasons in context of the band of the band Rush it may be their most important album because it sets the stage for everything that comes after it. Um, it's not my favorite Rush album. It's one of them, but it's not my favorite. It's not, in my opinion, their best album. But it might be, outside of 2112, their most important album because it was it was where they took everything they'd done before, this kind of progressive rock, uh, complicated, long, uh, you know, long songs, and uh, com- tried to compress them into something that was a little bit more radio friendly, a little bit more immediate, um, and to the, for the most part succeeded in doing that. Um, it gave them significant radio airplay for the first time and increased their popularity. And then, like I said, if it hadn't been for this album, the album that came after it, Moving Pictures, would not have been possible. So when we were talking about doing a Rush album, both JM and I thought this one kind of held that that spot as being. Um, you know, when we talk about an album telling a story, this one kind of telling the story of where this band ended up going after this. And so, again, while it's not, you know, their most critically acclaimed or my favorite or a lot of people's necessarily favorite, I know it's Jam's favorite. It is it is one of two of their most important albums. Um, so it's very important because it marks a big turning point for the band. Yeah. And, and it's, it's the it's, first one not recorded in Middle Earth. Uh, yeah yeah exactly um (laughs) well you you, you're you're being funny but uh the subject matter of this album is uh definitely not 
it, it's a it's more again, it's more sort of immediate. It's a very modern sounding album for a Rush album. Um, it doesn't have any of that sort of, uh, you know, renaissance things going on. It's not talking about about stuff, the typical themes they talk about. Um, and uh, yeah, it wasn't recorded in Middle Earth. It was co- recorded in Les Studio in Quebec. Tony. Yes, sir. Uh, there's a couple of terms that you use very frequently on this podcast. And I know we have quite a few very sophisticated people listening to this podcast, but we also have some people who are trying to learn about music and you've used some terms that they may not know. And one of those terms that is frequently used is prog rock. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. I mean, it, uh, it's mostly associated with British bands from the seventies. I think the first band that was considered progress or the first album that maybe was considered progressive rock was in the court of the Kings, uh, Crimson King by King Crimson. It's, uh, essentially, you know, it's, it's, I'll say loosely, although maybe not so loosely in some cases, based in sort of a classical music take on rock music. It's uh, got complex time signatures. The musicianship is usually very tight, usually very good. Um, it's not the warmest music in the world. It's 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 uh, almost almost clinical to some extent in its in its uh, musicianship. Um, it's about extravagance to a certain extent. Um, Rush started out as pretty much a, a knockoff of Zeppelin. So they were like a blues band and then delved into Prague a bit and became sort of the, one of the forebearers of progressive metal, if you will, although they were never really metal, but a lot of people considered them that. And then as they moved into a farewell to Kings and hemispheres, it became more of that kind of entrenched seventies Prague. Now you got bands like Genesis, which are more art rock. They're more, for some reason, accepted by the by the critics. Same thing with Gentle Giant. They're, they they I don't know what the difference is why people like some and not the others. Whereas bands like Rush were were hated by the critics. Kansas is an American progressive rock band. They were hated by the critics. Amen. But King, but uh, <laughs> but King Crimson's another band that was uh, was loved by the critics. So I'm not really sure what you know why once one type of pretentious music is loved by the critics and why another type isn't. <laughs> so the definition of prog rock, which I'm familiar with, is a band that plays songs that you wish would end earlier than they do. That <laughs> will not be the official <laughs> definition. No, that's your definition. Um, <laughs> and, well, but, be, but saying that, um, by the time Rush got around to recording this album, they were sick of doing that, too. I mean, their last album, Hemispheres, which, by the way, is my favorite Rush album, the whole first side is one song. And the second side is three songs. And so they, they they decided they didn't want to do that anymore. It was it was uh, they were stuck in a rut. They were doing these long uh, album side songs and they wanted to do something that was, like I said earlier, more immediate, more concise, but had held that same complexity that they'd been doing. And I and this was the beginning of that. There are long songs on this album. There's a nine minute song on this album. Uh, there's, a, I think, a seven minute song on this album, but there's also several five minute songs on this album. Um, and so when you say you wish it would end early, I think they might have kind of felt that way. So they were trying to get to that point where they could do something like that and have it end where it wasn't just going on and on and on and on. And then, and and according to the guys in the band, this album was an absolute joy to make. And probably because of all that, they had they had over egged their pudding a bit on hemispheres and, and made something so complicated that it was difficult to record and difficult to play live. And it just wore them out. JM, this band features a lead vocalist who is the bass player. And that that always seems to me to make the most sense because basically the bass player is the least talented musician in every (laughs) band and has the least to do. And doesn't it make sense that he is the uh, vocalist? And why haven't more bands used that technique? (laughs) <laughs> all right so oh i'm sorry i just uh, remember you play bass in a lot of bands <laughs> first of all it is not easy to play bass and sing lead vocals it is one of the most difficult things there's always single notes that you hit when you're playing bass and when you sing you're hitting single notes so you're just going well what am i hitting a bass note or am i 
singing a note. It, it, it's 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 not easy. It's, it's I will definitely say it's not easy. Well, and a lot of times the bass is playing counter to the melody. So the, yeah. if you're singing while you're playing a bass, you may be yeah. walking away from each other with with what you're doing. Yeah. I I was joking a little bit because I never make I ne I don't like to waste the opportunity to make fun of you. Um, <laughs> the bass player. This is also is just about as small as a band can get. Mm -hmm. I, I know you have some what I consider novelty bands with just a drummer and a guitar player or something, but you're almost not a you're not, almost not a, a band anymore once you get down to that. And these guys make a lot of noise for three guys. I yeah. probably I would say they make more noise than probably any band that has only three guys. I mean, a lot of the stuff they do is live in the studio. I've, I've read a an article about how they made uh, La Via Stragnato. Uh, what was that on? Hemispheres. But how they did that. Um, and it just took them forever, but they did it live in the studio. And you know, it's a 12-minute long song, and they just never could get it right whenever they would try to do an overdubs and stuff. And, and so everything, almost everything that you hear on that, song is live it's yeah they had, to, they had to break that song up into pieces yeah. to do it yeah yeah who, who are these guys in this band well there's getty lee the bassist lead singer there's alex lyson the guitarist and then there's the professor neil peart the drummer yeah. All right and is there any other band that you can think of where the most prominent well-known person in the band is the drummer uh, the Eagles. <laughs> I didn't think of the, that. The band. <laughs> well, I guess Robbie Robertson's probably. I don't know. I he think Robbie Robertson's uh, more known than Levon Hill. But the Eagles is a definite example and an obvious one that slipped through my mind for uh, the past week when I was trying to think. Neil Pert does Peart. not. Pert. Um, he doesn't sing. He. Uh, he plays drums and he plays a lot of drums. I think he plays more drums per album than anybody else in the world. There's a uh, <laughs> there's a, a guy, I, another band I like, and the, the the lead singer routinely says that Rush, the definition of a Rush is uh, too much drums, is what he says. <laughs> but uh, I'd like to know who that is because I think he and I have something in common. I, I think Gettys is well. I mean, they're all three well known, but I think Gettys easily as well known as Neil is. Well, is it? As a guy on the sidelines, as a guy that doesn't follow Rush, uh, I hear more about the drummer than than anybody anyone else. Yeah. And well, when anybody wants to ooze about, if, if somebody brings up best drummer in rock and roll, I think he comes up every I, time. And none I, of the other guys John come up as Bonham, best. I would say John Bonham and Neil Clark probably come up more often I, than but i've said this on this podcast i've said this on this podcast before while i love this band he's not my favorite drummer Stuart copeland is jm back to back to the band um the the bass player and the lead singer and i guess he's a writer he writes he Getty and lee. Alex, they write a lot of the music alex lifeson and Getty lee write the music is he the first one to adopt helium for rock and roll <laughs> He's actually not, I would say, John Anderson from Yes, maybe the first helium-infused lead singer. That's interesting you bring up Yes, because I've been wanting to ask this all week. Which is the whitest band in the whole world, Yes or Rush? That's not Rush, because Rush can get funky. I might give, uh, uh, yeah, I'm going to give Yes the nod on that one. That, that may be the whitest band in history besides the average white band <laughs> they, they're not they the sound pretty just... uh they sound pretty uh funky on occasion <laughs> the, the average white band's not the most white they're just the average white you know how um <laughs> the first three star wars are just it's not high-tech special effects or anything like that but it's still kind of cool when you're watching like it, it doesn't if, if you ever were to try to inject more special effects into that movie, it would just suck. He did. He tried to, and it did suck. I, this is how I feel about this 
period of rush. Like they were just discovering the use of synthesizers and they didn't go over the top with them. They weren't making those weird ass string sounds or anything like that. It was just the ability, the way that they blended synthesizers into their sound. I found fascinating. I don't, it doesn't necessarily mean that I liked actually what they were doing. It, it, it didn't really hit on any sort of emotional level with me, I, but I, I did find it interesting. But, you know, it's, it's like eventually they became like an adventures movie where the special effects just kind of overtook everything. And I think this is the, the, the point where the synthesizers were actually just another tool. Well, it's not just a ne- necessarily a tool, but just like uh, some flavoring to the yeah, a little yeah, I got you, a little color, a, a little, little dash color, a little yeah. color to their to their their sound, and it was, I, I found that very interesting, and I kept wanting them to do that. They did that in moving pictures. They did that in him. Who's playing the synthesizers in this band? Getty, Getty Lee. I mean, both Alex and Getty play Taurus pedals, but. Uh, but Gettys plays the the majority of the keys on it, and I think they'd agree with you, JM. That I mean, they got to a point in the late '80s where they were they had kind of lost their way, and so they came back with an album called uh, Counterparts, where they decided to just go back to being a power trio, yeah, and 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 lose some of the keyboards and go much, you know. And I think as much as I hate grunge and I do hate grunge, I think because <laughs> because it was popular at the time, they felt comfortable kind of going back to that power trio yeah. guitar-oriented music and making something that was a little bit more stripped down um yet, you know, rush-like, if you will. I I here's something here's something oh, here's a word I haven't used yet. Here's something interesting. Uh, um i grew up as a diehard rush fan and got all sorts of crap for it in fact i the first time i ever heard them i recorded them on my boom box i think i've told you guys this before but i'll tell it for the audience if they care and i played this song that i heard on the radio to a female friend of mine i was 13 years old and her response was not to tell me what the song was her response was oh my god you're a rush fan so that tells you kind of where they were in terms of hipness. But uh, so I heard that my whole life. But that being said, sometime in the 2000s or so, this band got to be hip and all the nerds and geeks and dorks that listened to them and got pantsed and got you know wedgies and whatever else in high school ended up running the uh, the music industry and the entertainment industry and all of a sudden these guys were a commodity again and people like they got hip in a weird way so uh let let me ask you about that because i didn't grow up as a rush fan um did you discover rush at a dungeon and dragons tournament or did you discover dungeons and dragons through rush uh, I was well out of my D and D stage when I discovered Rush. <laughs> I want to talk um, about the uh, album cover for just a moment before yeah, there's we go into the there's album. A Texas, there's a it's Texas a, it's connection. It's an interesting uh, album cover, and uh, one of the reasons we're covering this record is that uh, that picture is from Texas, That's which right. pretty much makes us experts on this uh, album. But uh, the album keep cover features a woman with a hairdo like the 50s with a permanent wave get it get it and there's a dork waving uh is that the same guy that designed the album cover it is that's hugh, hugh syme that's the guy who designed it he's he's waving oh. and and because it, here here's hey. the, what you're missing because it's a photograph and he's waving it's a permanent wave it never stops <laughs> and then I don't know why there is a copy of the Chicago Tribune. I do. With the uh, Dewey versus uh, the Dewey uh, defeats Truman headline that they had to remove because the Chicago Tribune got their nose bent out of shape. And, and how they can still be upset about that after it's been published so many times. It's one of the most famous pictures in American history. 
uh, go ahead, Tony, tell us about that. Uh, it, it's a bit of a stretch, but Hugh Symes said it's because sometimes the permanent wave of politics isn't always what you expect to be it to be. So that's, that's why horrible. That is yeah. absolutely horrible. That sounds uh, like a Bill Perk thing to say. And now there's also uh, the, Coca-Cola also asked them to remove a sign in the background. That's uh, right. That was, I forgot that one. Yeah, which also showed waves in it. Um, so they replaced and, the Coca-Cola words fonts with the band members' names. The, the the, yeah, that's right. And then in the entire background is uh, Galveston, Texas, during hurricane. That's the seawall in Galveston, Texas, during hur Hurricane Carla. 1961. Yeah, there's a couple of things I want to say about your uh, your poking the bear, poking fun at the band. You know, uh, Rush, uh, depending on what what you read, is either third or fourth in the number of consecutive gold and platinum albums by a band. Behind, if they're third, they're behind the Beatles and the Stones. If they're fourth, they're behind the Beatles, the Stones, and Aerosmith. Now that's a pretty major accomplishment. For a band that that you know isn't considered quote unquote part of the popular culture, you know, when these guys were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and uh, Jan Werner was go listing all the all the bands that were going to be inducted that year, and he would say where they were from and who they were, you know, there'd be applause or whatever. When it got to Rush, he said, and from Toronto, and the place went nuts. He wasn't even able to say the band's name. It went absolutely crazy. Um, yeah. so, you know, there's something to be said about the loyalty that got people have listening to this band. I mean, it's a very loyal fan base. And damn, can you name another band that has a romantic comedy with a dork that, uh, goes to rush concerts and pretend like he's playing a bass the whole time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I will, I will say this though, just on, on a side note, um, it does get a little, some, these guys got, and I'm, I was one of them at one point, although I saw the light, um, rush fans are a little cult like in the sense that they, they won't say anything bad about the band. You can't say anything negative about anything the band's ever done, or they will rip you new. Not even, it doesn't matter if they're male or female, if they're a rush fan. Well, they <laughs> is will there such thing as a female rush fan? Yeah, very hard. I'm going to comment I'm on that. Surprised. I had I'm, no I'm gonna, idea there was female. I'm going to comment on that. So in the in the in the documentary behind the lighted stage, Alex is talking about his their fan base, and that's what's so funny about the crowd or the fans being humorless about the band is the band has a sense of humor about themselves. So Alex Alex is talking about their fan base. He goes, you know, when we started out, the fan base was primarily male and white, but as we progressed and got you know got more um, accolades, the band base the fan base ended up being male and white. You know, so it's essentially it's a very white male <laughs> fan base. Uh, yeah, there aren't very many female rushers. I mean, it, and it, it's very hard to find a more self-deprecating band in the world. I mean, they really are just well, the, the guys are just great guys. They're just that makes me feel better because they should be. And here we are <laughs> at the beginning of Black History Month talking about the whitest band in rock and roll. We have uh, we have spent a lot of time on. Uh, outside issues, but we need to dive into this album. Fortunately, there's only about three songs on it because they're all <laughs> half an hour long, so we can go through that's it not, quickly. That's not true. The uh, first song is actually what what we call a hit. Um, this is Spirit of Radio. They leave off out the definite article, but they got a lot of they've got a lot of evidence of um, problems with grammar on this album. And I'm assuming it's because they're speaking Canadian and not American. It was which it was a call. It was a call sign or slogan of a Canadian rock station. Uh, it was KFNY FM Toronto based radio. Yeah, spirit of radio. Radio. The spirit of radio. So that's where that came from. So here's um, here's something I talked about with JM earlier. I'm sympathetic to this song 
I think it's a fun song to listen to. And uh, they do get going. And and I actually uh, feel myself starting to tap my foot to this song. But, the you know, the real thing is there is nostalgia and there is sentiment about radio. And everybody had a radio station when they were a kid. They listened to nonstop. I can still remember my little transistor under my pillow so my parents couldn't hear it. And, and going to sleep listening to music. And then uh, when you were when you could finally take a radio with you and put headphones on and listen to it and you had it in your car, it was part of the independence of being in your own car, choosing the radio station and driving around with the windows down listening to that radio. It's a radio is a wonderful sentimental uh, thing to attach to. And I was talking to JM and I said, has anyone ever ever written a sentimental song about television (laughs) and the answer is absolutely not nobody has those feelings about television and then i started thinking further people do have that attachment to books right they love books in the same way they love radio but have you ever heard anyone write a sentimental song or express a sentimental thought about the internet so, no. <laughs> no. Well, it's, it's completely of, it, different. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that radio and books make you create a picture in your head. So, yeah. Yeah. And this song is of the same ilk, although it takes a slightly different turn, is more than a feeling. You know, it's got the joy that radio brings to you. Although it's this, uh, this song has more than that because it's talking about, it's talking partly about that and partly about not really liking where radio is going because it's really about freeform radio and the fact that there used to be stations that would kind of do whatever you know you have a dj and the dj was the dj was the guy who kind of programmed what he was going to play right and and you could tell the difference from one dj and the other because he was playing his stuff and that if that's not absolutely gone um i don't know where it exists other than XM radio, I, I, if it I, were not for XM radio, I would have nothing to say about radio anymore. I, it's yeah, and this was all about the 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 thought of radio becoming something that was such a money maker that you had you had um, radio stations going to format you know formatting, so they were classic rock or they were album rock or they were country, and they right. didn't play a little bit of this and a little bit of that, um, you know. And uh, it, it's kind of interesting. A couple of things about this song. The beginning riff is supposed supposed to represent sort of static coming in on the radio. It does sound like a radio, and I don't know why. This is my favorite Rush song, and this may be one of my top ten favorite songs ever. Really? Yeah, because of what you're talking about. They're not. These guys are not above subtlety. They these guys could figure out that there there were things going on in the world, and they could incorporate those into their songs and that's the, i think that's one of the things that makes me very interested in rush it's just all of it, they're like actually incorporating things that are going on in the the modern world that's okay that's kind of cool well, actually doing it's, that. were they on drugs because it seems like they're too uh too awake and uh acute to be on drugs they were they you know they were guys that smoked a lot of pot but there's all sorts of stories about how how when they they actually toured with kiss for a while and uh and gene simmons likes to make fun of the fact that after after the shows there'd be girls crawling all over everything and the guys in rush would go back to the hotel room and hang out and read books and stuff while they're you know doing rock while kiss is doing rock and roll things mm-hmm. but um but were there Jan- any games would they go back to play any kind of games Yes, with the twelve-sided die, and uh, yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so, JM, when you talk about them incorporating things around them, so there's a really great interview online of them from this time period talking about what they were listening to at the time, and and this guy, you know, snidely says, "Well, there's so many bands going back to a primitive sound and and go, stripping things down," and Rush says, "Yeah, but those aren't the interesting bands." And yeah. what they were listening to at the time were the police and the talking heads. And and you can tell on this album that I think Neil 
Neil loves Stuart Copeland, and I think his drumming becomes – this is going to sound funny, but it becomes significantly less busy on this album than in previous albums. It's still busy. It's still a lot going on, but it's less busy. It's more precise. There's like there's room in it that there isn't. And then this song has a, re, has a reggae part in it, which is kind of an homage right. to the police, I would think. Just – they want to wow you. They don't want to hit you. Does that make sense? It does. I know what you're saying. Yeah, and – to me, this is their most success, successful song. It hit just like I hear this. I want to keep hearing it. I don't want it to stop. This is a great song. This well, a lot of people agree with you. This song was named the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, one of the top 500 songs that helped shape rock and roll. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, you know, it got them radio, got them radio airplay. Um, yeah, I think I, I think Getty and, and Neil both have publicly said this was one of the most important songs they've ever done. Yeah. Um, I, I will say there's one thing about this song that's always rubbed me the wrong way. I'm not a big fan of lyrics that are play on words that you don't get unless you read the lyrics. Right. So yeah. uh, in this song, when he when when Neil riffs on the sounds of silence, there's that, you know, the prophets are written on the subway wall, tenement halls. It became the words of the prophets are written on the studio wall and prophets is spelled P-R-O-F-I-T-S. Like, OK, that's a little that's a little too cute to to be, you know, so no, I, 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 I like no that. I'm glad you told me that. One more thing I can add to my very short list of things I like about Rush. But supposedly that was that was um, influenced by go- having these opening acts go out on stage and tell every city they played at how much they loved them and how how big how big of fans they were or how great yeah. their fans were. And and Neil just thought that was so so you just just like shallow and you know whatever and it, it just rubbed him the wrong way. So supposedly that's what this line is based. On. I don't know. Well, that's that's interesting. Um, I also think it's interesting they're taking a shot at commercial radio on the, on yep. the album where they first became uh, available Successful. for commercial I believe, radio. I believe that's like bronzy. It's irony. I think that's right. So the next yep. one is also ironic. Uh, free Will. favorite song in this album and one of my top three favorite rush songs ever can you one of uh, my least favorite songs by rush ever uh, i think i think this is exactly what you said about spirit of radio i think this is rush condensed into five and a half minutes it's progressive it's tight it's it's dealing with stuff that they all that they sort of dabbled in a little bit that kind of uh you know, humanistic uh, uh, lyrics, um, you know, talking about the human condition to a certain extent. Uh, the bass line in the middle of it is amazing. As a bass player, I don't know how you don't love that bass line. I think this song is great. Um, and uh, the amazing thing about it is all the weird time signatures in it don't feel like weird time signatures. I don't know how they pull that off, you know? Well, that's one of the things I'll actually disagree with you on, Tony. I, I do recognize... The, the time signatures they're jarring like it's almost like okay you're doing time sick for the sake of doing different time signatures and i have never wanted to rip a guitar out of someone's hands for <laughs> and alex lyson on this song i cannot stand the guitar solo uh, i'm gonna have to sign up with jm on this one it he has what I call pointless, technically flashy guitar solos that have nothing to do with the melody. They're <laughs> yeah. interchangeable. They can he can he could just lay down a bunch of guitar solos before they even make the album, and they can just insert them wherever they want to. He reminds me. This is going to make everyone hate my guts. Reminds me of Eddie Van Halen with his. <laughs> That has well, absolutely nothing to do with the melody, and this guy's even worse than that. I really, I really feel bad for you guys. You were obviously <laughs> dropped, dropped on your head as children, 
and and something horrible hard happened in your for this record. Uh, something horrible happened to you in your childhood. Did not like this song. This song is fantastic, fantastic, and I refuse to say anything else about it other than that. Were you ever a? I will say this. I'm going to add one last thing, and this this is probably why you really love this song, Doug. This was, I believe, the very last song that Getty did his screechy vocals on the very last line of the song getty's like you know puts something in a vice and hits that high note and it is as a rush fan fantastic let me ask you jam were you ever a sophomore in college at some point yeah do you remember staying up all night talking about philosophy when you really didn't have any idea what you're talking about um i'm 54 years old i still do that so anyway that's what these lyrics are to you. Well, <laughs> let me ask you a question. Sure. It's this is about free will, right? Uh-huh. And so he's saying, by choosing not to decide, you still are making a choice. Uh-huh. So, by deciding not to decide, that is an act of free will. Uh huh. But he would have you believe that it is not free will. Unless you do it the way he does. I don't think that's at all. I think you're reading way too much into that. <laughs> no, I'm with Doug on this one. <laughs> no, no, no. I think, I think this is very much about, uh, about uh, you know, shining a light on what he, what Neil believed. Neil wrote the song. What Neil believed, I don't know if, you know, I'm not going to say I agree one way or another, but I think what he believed to be, uh, you know, people uh, giving their lives over to things that predestined or preordained what their actions were. And so he's saying, I really, you can do whatever you want. I'm going to choose free will because that to me is the embodiment of what hum- what a human being can do is make their own decisions and, and create their own destiny. It's not someone guiding you. Now, there, that's not saying, I don't think he's saying that free will isn't a gift from somebody else or whatever if you believe that. But I think what he's saying is it's not pre you're not predestined to go a certain pathway. Your, your life is not ordained by something saying that you were, it knows already where you're going to be at the end of that life. It seems like he wants to reject any school of thought. He wants it to be his, his deal. I, I, okay. I don't get that at all. I've always, okay. I've always felt this song is about, you know, you can do whatever you want. This is what I'm doing. That's not to well, say he's that, not. He's a little he's derogatory. Not, uh, I, I, I'll agree with that. I'll agree with that. But that's not that. But I don't. I don't know. I don't, I don't I know. I'm that, starting to feel like a college sophomore arguing into midnight. Look, I, I will free. I, I I will also agree that I think um, as much as I love this song and as much as I love Rush in general, you know, the lyrics are often heavy-handed and a little. A little like okay, whatever. Well, let's let's uh, go to this next song, Jacob's Ladder. A song can just kind of make you space out. Like I was, I'm just really enjoying hearing where this where this song is going. I I, I don't really um want to hear anything else. I just I, I'm just enjoying the situation that I'm in, and it's very few vocals, um, a lot of nice synthesizer parts in it. I I, I really do. This is one of my. I, I think I think it's a very very good song. I have nothing well, against it. Yeah. The, they they talk about how they were trying to be cinematic with this song and conjure and the music came first and and what the music was trying to do was paint an image of what a Jacob's ladder is, which is essentially when the cat clouds burst through the sky and they're you know a cloudy kind of overcast sky and you can see the the, the sun rays through it. That's a Jacob's yeah. ladder, and it's named that because of the biblical story about Jacob's vision seeing angels going up in the sky. They were trying to conjure that up musically. So the music came first and then the lyrics. It's funny that you talk about the keyboards because you know, how long have you known me? I am not a musician, but that little middle part in the song, yeah. you know, where, where yeah. Getty talks about, right. 
Uh, well, I, I taught myself that on my little Casio mini keyboard, so it's not exactly complicated stuff we're talking about. Here. No, he, ne- he never does anything complicated on keyboards. There, there, it's, he's not like a keyboard czar, but I, I do appreciate um, use of, of synthesizers to augment things. I do that. There's that part in the middle where I really do think he just kind of transport you to some some different place where you really can kind of picture all right the clouds party and sun's coming through the sun coming I, through and i like this song a lot i don't want to, i'm not disparaging it. i just always thought the keyboard part was if i could learn it it's not complicated um but no i like the song too i do think though it feels to me a lot like things that came before this album it it feels like a throwback to me this could have that's jacob's ladder could have been on on hemispheres um and fit and fit fine um whereas when we talk about natural science that song to me seems very much more modern than this song does in terms of its approach to stuff but i don't disagree it's I, i like i like jacob's ladder a lot it's a good song the time signatures it i think it the it starts off in five four and then it goes to seven eight and back to five four, and then it goes to a there's a three eight where it comes in at some point. The the way that they're playing the the time signatures doesn't jar with your mind so much. You know the the whole idea of the band trying to do something a little bit different. Now this is a longer song, but trying to do something different than this album where they try to take what they were doing in these long extended pieces and and truncate them down to a shorter thing. It se- and when you're talking about all the different times time signatures and time changes, it seems to me that a, a band that's that's I, I don't think any of us would disagree that these guys aren't talented musicians, regardless of whether you like the music or not. These guys know how to play their instruments, right? It seems like that that whole thing is part of them trying to make things interesting to them yeah. you know because otherwise yeah. it's boring if they yeah. you know they get bored it's like you got you got a, a prodigy in school who's a great math math student and they're sitting there doing rudimentary math they they get bored they want something a little bit more excited and i think that that's kind of even when they were trying to do these shorter songs they still wanted to keep things interesting enough for them to enjoy playing them we have we have our our most loyal listener is a Frenchman, or at least he lives in France. I'll be very disappointed if I find out he's an uh, American uh, living over there. But I wish he were here so that he could help me announce the next song. Alternate. Just between us, I think it's time for us to recognize the differences we sometimes feel. This is one of my least favorite Rush songs. I've never particularly liked this song too much. Uh, and then I found out in doing research, I never knew this, that Entre New comes from the Fountainhead. Neil was a big Ayn Rand fan. and That is into- so perfect. Back yeah. to the sophomore in college. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he was in, I mean, he, he denounced it later on, but there's a lot of Rush lyrics that are based in objectivism, her goofy philosophy of object- objectivism. Um, uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you have never been familiar with Anne Rand. She is a uh, a Russian who came to the United States filled with, uh, properly filled with hate for the big giant socialist state. And she wrote an, al- uh, wrote an album, wrote a book called The Fountainhead. She also wrote another one called Atlas Shrugged. And Aunt, they Aunt are some of the most tedious uh, works of fiction you'll ever read. Every college girl that takes herself too seriously will end up falling in love with these books at some point. Um, anyway, avoid these books at all costs. Well, they're also the foundation to the unthinking version of modern libertarianism, too. So it's a shame. But uh, they uh, Rush's label is actually called Anthem, which is based on another one of her books. I mean, they were they were Neil was a that big, one wasn't that long, at least. No, that's true. They were. I mean, she influences lyrics for a long time. I didn't know it got this far into the into their catalog though i thought that ended with 2112 what, what album was trees on uh oh hemispheres that was their last album so you're right that yeah was, I guess. Uh, that's a very uh and ran 
No, it is. In fact, uh, Rand Paul got a cease and desist order from the band because he kept reading the lyrics at some political rallies and the band was like, hey, back (laughs) off. I don't think I'm alone in not liking this song. I think a lot of Rush fans don't like this song. You know, the keyboards are I know you like the keyboards in this album. I think they're kind of goofy. I think it's a song sort of about relationships. And because the guy writing it was one of the most introverted people on the planet, it just doesn't come across as being genuine in a lot of ways. Um, I learned today, and Jam, you could probably speak to this better. Uh, Alex was trying to get a twelve-string sound on this on this song, and um, and he had yeah. a uh, and he had what he, and his I guess his twelve-string was busted. So what they ended up doing was uh, combining. He had a Gibson J55 in standard tuning, and and then uh, he had a Nashville tuning on his Gibson Dove. And when they played it, when he played them together, it approximated a 12 string sound. I thought that was kind of interesting. You know, well, that's kind of interesting because the next song, Different Strings, actually does have a full 12 string sound on it. I, I was listening to it today going. Yeah, why, why, don't we get to, why don't we get to that song unless you want to say anything about Entre Nude Jam? Uh, I don't like the song. Okay, let's move on to a song that I actually like a lot. I'm well, sorry, Doug. You know, I took, they, I took, if they I took, can do one title in French, why can't they do the whole record in French? That's all I'm asking. Different strings. Well, Next. It this is one of my favorite Rush songs. I would probably put it in the top five. Um, and... It's just a much more straight ahead. Absolutely. Song. Yeah, it's yep. just a, it's just a song, and it's just Getty a wrote the lyrics. Song and it's, this yeah. is the one. Yeah, where Getty, Getty. yeah, I remember reading that Getty wrote the lyrics instead of. Uh, and it, again, it's about it's about a relationship, and I think it rings a little truer than than the last song. Oh, yeah, it's just, um, it's very, and the piano parts are actually very yeah. pretty. They the piano's not- played by. The guy who took the album cover, right? Yeah, he signed the art director for the band, played the yeah. piano on it. Um, as a Rush fan, though, I will say, and you guys have already commented on how you don't like Alex's solos. As a Rush fan, I will say, almost to a, a person, you'd ask any person who's a Rush fan, the one thing they hate about this song is how it fades out at the end, right when it sounds like Alex is about to just get hey, down. You know what? That's my favorite part. That's my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> well, here, here's what's interesting. Uh, I found out today, I read an interview with Terry Brown, who's a longtime producer for the band, and he said he's asked about that solo almost more than anything else he's asked about with the band. And he really? said, he, he goes, uh, he goes, ah, you know, we felt like we got the chunk of the solo. It was good enough. We, you know, we couldn't make it really go anywhere from there. So it's just going to be a longer version of what it was. So we thought, ah, let's just cut it off there. <laughs> let's just fade it out. Um <laughs> So, but he gets asked about it all the time and Rush fans like me and any other person who's a real Rush fan, that's like, ah, what, where was that going to go? You know, uh, well, well I, you know what would happen if I were their producer, you would yeah, have cut it off did. before then I'd start solo. I really like this song a lot. I, I think it, I think you're right, Jam. It's so unusually straightforward for a Rush song. at this uh, at this time. Um, it's so sub- subdued. Neil's drumming on it is really great, and uh, yeah, he doesn't uh, do anything nuts. Out there is a part where he's got there's a there's a hi hat part in there. Yeah. I think it's just amazing. That sounds like your hero, Stuart Copeland, um, yeah. and uh, it just that doesn't. Is so strange that you love both of those drummers because <laughs> I love Copeland and this guy. It's the busiest crap of this whole album is everybody's well, just busy going. We got guitars going. You, and you got you, bass players. You need to listen. You need to listen. You need to from uh, toadstool to toadstool. And you then you've to, got the uh, drummer just banging away. There must be 36 drums in that kit. Um, you need to listen to older Rush. And I got into a somewhat, you know, talking about Rush fans not having a sense of humor or a sense of proportion about their stuff. I got into a sort of semi-serious argument with a friend of mine who's a diehard Rush fan, probably a bigger one than me. 
because I was listening to the album Fly By Night, and I said to him, the drums are just way too busy on that album. They take me out of the songs a lot of times, and I never noticed that when I was younger, but listening to it now, it's just like, I need less drums on those songs. And I feel like this album was a, was like that, and to you, it's way too busy. But if you listen to that older stuff, it's, it's nothing compared to that. You know, the yeah, question I, that kept coming up for me was, uh, there's another very busy drummer, Keith Moon. Yeah. And yeah. I absolutely love everything he does. And I, I'm trying to figure out why his busy drumming is so attractive to me and why this busy drumming makes me want to get Neil, fast forward. He was he was Neil's favorite drummer, Keith Moon. I know he was. <laughs> and, and Keith Moon is one of my least favorite drummers. I just think he, he plays just too, too damn much. Too, too loose. I'm I'm a pocket guy, and I, that's what I love. The Who, absolutely love Pete Townsend's uh, songs, but there's no pocket. There's absolutely everybody's playing lead. Well, I yeah, know what I've always said about uh, about the Who. They have a lead singer, they have a lead drummer, they have a lead <laughs> bass player, and they have a lead rhythm guitar player. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> no, no, I mean, it is not, it's like parallel play what they talk about with little kids when they're going when they're in kindergarten. Nobody's yeah. really playing with the other kids. They're all doing their own thing. But for some reason, it works with the who. And I just love it. All right. Let's go to uh, natural science, which made me fill up, I think, three uh, trash cans full of vomit. Listening to this one. <laughs> God, you are so wrong. This song is great. It just sounds more modern to me than than Jacob's Ladder. That that analogy that we're all little tide pools trying to. Now what what he's doing what he's going at is so it starts off if you if you listen to the song and it's like as a whole it starts off with the water and the, and and it's man kind of paddling in the water. You've got the man kind of taming nature, and then by the end of the song, it's just the tide crashing on. On, onto the surf. So essentially, the song is about man's desire to tame nature and or science, but in doing so, wanting to destroy both rather than just using them, you know, as a tool or preserving them in some way. That's what the song's about. Um, I, I really kind of thought this was really cool. So in the beginning, where Getty's voice is echoing, you know how they got that? They put a speaker cabinet outside. They were recording in the studio, which is out in the mountains, and that's Getty's voice echoing off the mountains back into the into the uh, whatever the recording is. It's all natural. There's no effects on his voice whatsoever. I, I think that's really pretty cool. I think I think Doug will appreciate this. This song originally, at least parts of it, were uh, were based on uh, Sir Galen and the Green Gwait, How do you say yeah, Galen and the that. Green Knight? And uh, they didn't think that the sort of renaissance uh, tone to the song, i.e. elves and dancing and all that other stuff, uh, fit the tone of this album. So they changed it and essentially constructed this album in the studio or the song in the studio um, to to have more of a feel for what they were trying to go for. You know, a little bit of a more hard edge, a little bit more up-tempo, a little less Englishy sounding. Uh, Tony... You have something for us tonight for the kids. We're trying to talk to the next generation about the <laughs> about the importance of a full album. We're trying to talk to them about the benefits of vinyl. And we're tonight we didn't do a very good job. Uh, uh, we're recommending an album that will make them hate rock and roll. But you have something for these kids. Yeah, I have another album that's going to make them hate rock and roll. <laughs> so... Uh, I don't know why I felt the need to do something kind of in the spirit of this album, but uh, back in the early 80s of album spirit of album. Yeah. Back in the early 80s, there's a band called Marillion that was a part of what was then termed neo progressive rock. And uh, and they put out four albums with this guy named Fish as their lead singer. Um, and it was very and he was, you know, the stuff they're doing was very reminiscent of kind of early Genesis. Um, 
uh, he he had this weird, uncanny ability to sound like Peter Gabriel in one line and Phil Collins in another. It was really bizarre. But anyway, and then sound like himself. He's a big, tall, seven foot tall Scottish guy. Anyway, last year he released an album called um, I'm going to get this wrong, but it's called Weltschmerz. a voice he tries to recognize the source and place the name a face so familiar the smile soft and warm the memory evades him his mind wanders on down rabbit holes a darkened maze, a place to hide and be alone Where thoughts land like snowflakes in the palm of his hand Swift melting It's a German, it's a German word that means, tra- loosely translates into world weary Um he he spent about five albums making this or five years making this album. It's a double album. I'm not a big fan of double albums, but this doesn't feel like a double album. Um, it's it's got a whole lot of progressive rock DNA in it, but it's not really a progressive rock album. But it's got some elements to it. Uh, it's it's worth listening to. Uh, his lyrics are fantastic. He he considers himself a writer who sings, so he puts a lot of effort into his lyrics, and they're very very good. Um, and the and the music's accessible, um, but it, it's worth listening to multiple times because it's there's some depth there that you don't get on the first or second listen to it. Um, there's a song called um, "Walking on Eggshells" that I, I really like. Um, there's a song called "The Sea Song," which is a waltz, which is really great. Um, it's just a good album. It's not for everybody, but I I recommend give it a listen anyway. Fish from the water. Well. Um, Tony, I'm glad I was a little worried you wouldn't be with us. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, some of you who have listened to the podcast are probably so happy when it ends that you turn it off right away. But there, uh, our producer, J.M. Rowe, has uh, put some of our outtakes after the outro. And uh, I thought <laughs> Tony might be in deep trouble after the last one, after the Sam Cooke uh, podcast and I'm, I'm glad to see you're here tony we're we're happy to have you here we're happy to have someone to diversify um this podcast diversity is very important and we want to have both uh the good albums that jam and i talk about and the other ones that tony well i i i agree with you diversity is important that's why we've got three middle-aged white guys from texas talking about this stuff <laughs> Well, we're we, we're expanding into the white music of Rush. Uh, <laughs> next week we've got yes, no. I'm just kidding. That won't happen. I promise. Jethro Tull. I don't think yes has a fan among the three of us. I, I sure hope not. If they do, uh, I, I like we'll yes. Spare you. Do you uh, really? I do. God. I just, I really... All right, Sam. We're gonna shut up and get us out of here. All right. <laughs> That's it for tonight's show, where we took a look at Rush and one of their more popular albums, Permanent Waves. We would like to thank each and every one of you that have downloaded our show. We're at almost 1,300 downloads. We cannot thank you guys enough. Next week, we're going to be looking at a very popular album from 1978, the first album by The Cars, appropriately named The Cars. Be sure and look us up on Spotify or your favorite podcast platforms such as iHeartRadio. We're on Amazon. Um, we're on iTunes. Download us when you get a chance. Also, give us a review. 
you can give us how many stars you want to. We're also on Facebook, Tapping Vinyl, and we're on Twitter, at Tapping Vinyl. You also can email us at tappingvinyl at gmail.com. For our host, Doug Cooper, our co-host, Tony Schlegel, and me, your humble producer, Jonathan J.M. Rowe, this is Vinyl Tap, where all the podcasts go to 11. And remember, it's just between us. What was that Carla thing? <laughs> what the hell was that? I had no idea. What you Carla? The album cover. <laughs> Hurricane Carla. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Hurricane Carla. That's right. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Man, that's good. We got to yeah, Paula uh, Turnbull is uh, the, the model. The model. She shows her panties. I know. It's mm-hmm. very, very...